We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed the amount of complaining about var being used to monitor goalkeeper movement on penalty kicks is mind-blowing if you're unable to understand or unwilling to adjust to the laws either existing or new that's not on fifa it's not on the referees it's not on society it's on you so my advice stop breaking the law hello sunshine i'm alexi lawless and welcome State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. And once again, we are joining you from Paris, France. France, the site of the Women's World Cup. We have just completed the group stage. We'll be talking about that uh, and other things going on in the American soccer community. But joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, Monsieur David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Monsieur Mossy, how are you here in Paris? Très bien. And by the way, savant is a French word, so we, we don't realize in our American lingo every day how often we use words like encore and you know, they come from French language. Wonderful. An educational podcast yeah. to boot. Okay. What, how, is, how is things going here? Are you enjoying it? I am loving it. I told you Last time that Paris is my favorite city in the world, and I was uh, determined to make the most of it, and, and I really have. I've, I've put on a sightseeing clinic here. Uh, I feel like I'm Clark Griswold, and everybody else is like that couple from Akron. It's a very obscure movie reference, but hopefully somebody out there gets it. Um, <laughs> so give us the highlights uh, of what you've seen so far. Well, when we last spoke, I had done the Arc de Triomphe, I had done the Eiffel Tower, I had done uh, Luxembourg Garden, the Pantheon, Sorbonne. Uh, I've since added to the list the Cimetière Père Lachaise, which is this famous cemetery where the likes of Jim Morrison and Oscar Wilde are buried. Uh, then I took a tour of the Palais Garnier, which is the big opera house. Uh, today I walked around the Jardin Tuileries and, and the Louvre. And so it's been yeah, Place de la Concorde. So it's been, uh, it's been terrific. Yeah, pretty much any little pocket of free time I've had, I've, I've done something. I haven't just been kind of like hanging out at the hotel or anything. So that's been, been good in that regard. Your days have been programmed and uh, robustly programmed, it sounds like. Um, okay, so that's, that's fine for the body uh, and mind and for the intellect and for the history and all that kind of stuff. But from a social perspective, uh, have, you, have you been going out? Have you been enjoying the, uh, the food and the culture and the people and, uh, and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, not really. Last night, as you know, we had kind of a, a work gathering yep. to commemorate the end of the group stage where we all went out. And that was sort of the first time I was out late and drinks and that kind of thing. Uh, for the most part, I've been pretty tired at the end of these days and just kind of going to sleep. I haven't been up for like going out to bars and clubs and 
things of that nature. And, and food has just been kind of a grab something quick here and there. Right. You're, you're, a, you're a French academic at this point. Right. 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 If it doesn't have to do with, uh, with history. <laughs> and you're, uh, you're, you're throwing out French. Uh, how, is it, how is it working in terms of communication? Yeah, okay. I mean, again, uh, I can speak it uh, well. I can always convey what I want to say. Uh, it's a bit hit or miss understanding French people speaking back to me. Some of them speak very quickly, so uh, I struggle with that. But if they speak slowly enough, then I'm, I'm able to have a back and forth conversation. But yeah, it's coming along. It's been good. So, but wait, you 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 haven't had any good meals or anything like that? I mean, have you eaten well? France and certainly Paris, well known for its food, and people are going to ask you that. But you're going to have all of this exposure to to history and stuff like that, but you're not going to have eaten anything. Yeah, I probably need to work in a, a couple of like big meals at famous restaurants before I leave, so I sort of have that component yeah, of it. Too. I have not you done have that. To. You can do what you can do whatever you want. Don't let me yeah. influence you. I was just uh, I don't know. You're not quite a foodie or anything like that. You're much more of a historian and stuff like that. Well, I'm glad you're getting your historic fix uh, of all the different uh, places. I continue to do my. My Groundhog Day existence, like like you do to a certain extent, you're you're much more well read and much more uh, expansive in terms of what you are seeing. My mine consists of my my runs up and down the Seine. Uh, it's been beautiful. We've had some interesting weather throughout the the group stage and and our time here. Crazy fluctuations in cold and hot, uh, but when it's beautiful, it is incredibly beautiful. And we've been very lucky, especially uh, in the last week of having some really beautiful days. And for those that that haven't, and I don't know why you wouldn't, our set continues to be one of the stars, if not the star of the show, right in front of the Eiffel Tower in the Hasta uh, Trocadero, is that what we're uh, yep. calling it? If I, if I listen to Rob Stone each and every day, and it's an absolute privilege and pleasure to be able to broadcast each and every day from such an incredible set. And oftentimes people are, early in these tournaments, when we have these incredible images behind us, people ask me, are, are you... Is a green screen, and it's, and that, it's that vivid and that colorful and that, uh, and that interesting, uh, much more so than anything I'm saying or anybody else is saying on, uh, on, on air. So it's been, it's been really, really cool. And now we're getting this phenomenon that happens each and every tournament where people start the tournament watching on their couch and, and watching at home and, and bars or at work and seeing this, uh, this set. And then when they get to France, making this pilgrimage to come see it from, for themselves, obviously from, from behind the scenes and a different vantage point. So it's fun. I mean, we keep tallying up all the different states of Americans uh, that have come over, and it's everywhere. And the, the presence here from the American fans was something we expected, and that's why we sold the most tickets and why FIFA loves us. But to see it manifest on a day in and day out basis, especially where we are down there at the uh, Eiffel Tower, is wonderful. There's and and then on game days to see the red, white, and blue all over there. It's it's pretty it's pretty special. I think I think we are rivaled at this point by the Dutch. The Dutch have brought it. The definitely the Dutch uh, the Dutch have uh, brought it with the uh, with the orange. All right, so uh, let's get into the actual tournament. As we said, we are at the end of the group stage. I'm not going to do a, a state of the union for uh, for this because there's so much that we I haven't covered from a podcast perspective. Each and every day I've been giving video states of the unions, and hopefully you've uh, been able to see some of that. But we're going to hit some of the the big talking points out there when it comes to this Women's World Cup so far. Uh, Gold Cup has just kicked off, so that continues uh, to go on. So the uh, U.S. men's national team back in action. I guess the first one, Mossy, that I want to get your take on is last summer, we predicted that VAR, Video Assistant Refereeing, was going to be a huge story because it was being implemented for the first time. 
and that last summer in Russia. And it ended up not fizzling out, just not not only not being the story that we thought it was going to be, but actually being an incredible rare time where FIFA uh, was commended in the way that it was implemented. It was positive, I think, generally, uh, and the majority thought it was a positive influence on the game. There weren't any real major negatives or problems when it came to VAR. That was last summer. This summer, because we all, and I think rightfully, demanded that that FIFA have VAR at the Women's World Cup, which which they did. It is here. It is being used. But it is so much more of a story than last year. Do you think that? For, why do you think it's so much more of a story this year in this summer's World Cup than it was last in last summer's World Cup? I think any competition, any country, any league that's exposed to it for the first time, there's going to be growing pains, and it's something that you need to get used to and trial and error and and, and sort of fine-tune it as you go along. I mean, we covered the Bundesliga, mm-hmm. and the first half of the first season when they implemented it, it was, it was a mess, but it, it's gotten gradually better to the point where this past season there were no VAR controversies. And so I think the men are sort of ahead of the women in that regard, and they, they've, they've sort of uh, figured out uh, how to make it work, and, and the women are, are at the beginning of that process. Uh, but you're right. It, it's sort of a de- it's a debate that was more or less settled and it's mm-hmm. kind of reignited a little bit. Although I come across very few people now that are like staunchly against VAR. Most people preface their comments by saying I'm for it, but I have some issues with how it's being applied. And and, and frankly, I'm sort of in that camp. Well, it's a work in progress. Yeah. I think we all understand that. Yeah, I, I think the, the larger issue that any Aluko has made on our on our broadcast is that uh, VAR was sold to us. I, I remember the quote from the FIFA executive years ago. He said, it, the, the idea is to eliminate the obvious mistakes and leave us only debating the debatable decisions. And so if it was just that, if it was just cutting out the blatant Maradona, hand of God type uh, incidents that reduce a match to a farce, uh, I think we'd all be okay with it. But when you start getting into these little ticky-tack fouls in the box and looking at every sort of uh, clutch and grab, and I think people think that's that's too intrusive and you're, you end up with... with without a satisfying decision at the end, because those are typically plays where, you know, two people can look at a replay 10 times and still disagree. And so to start overturning referees decisions on those kinds of calls, I think yeah, can be problematic. Moss, I mean, it, I don't think that that official, I don't think it was disingenuous. I think it was idealistic, but I think it's a slippery slope and it has been. And, you know, what is, what lives up to the level of being reviewable or should be, you know, if, if, if the level is Maradona's handball, if that, if that's it, and very, very few moments are going to be reviewed. And yet, I think it was also sold on getting the calls right. I think, and, I, and I think a lot of people said, I just see so many calls where it was, it, was, it was wrong, and we actually have the technology to prove that it was wrong. We want to, we want to get those right. You know, the other, the other part is that the, you know, the, the rules and IFAB, which has the rules for... Uh, for soccer, which makes the rules and the laws uh, for soccer, they implement them at different times. And it has nothing to do with whether it's men's or women's, there's just a different date. And so the new set of rules were implemented right at the beginning of this World Cup. Now, this wasn't a surprise to anybody. Everybody knew what was coming down the pike in terms of the rules. And so I think one of the, one of the big and the interesting parts of this summer's World Cup is that, you're first off, you're dealing with players that not a single one has ever actually dealt with VAR because none of the leagues that they have uh, use VAR, and certainly from a, a World Cup perspective, uh, the women's game has never uh, has never had that. So they're in in real time having to adjust 
to a VAR world. And I, as I've said, I never played in a VAR world, but I can recognize even from where I sit and stand that you need to be able to adjust as a player. And fundamentally, the way that you play the game changes. And you can see it. You can see it happening in real time in this, uh, in this tournament. The amount of players that have their hands behind their back, knowing, what the, uh, knowing that VAR is watching and knowing what the laws are the adjustment on goalkeepers. And I think that's where a lot of this debate and controversy right now is coming because a rule that has always been in, in place, a, a law that has always been in place, goalkeepers not uh, coming off of their line before the kick is actually taken on a penalty is now actually being enforced. And that's where I think everybody gets, uh, gets crazy. And that's where a lot of this controversy has come from for those of them that have been watching the World Cup. Uh, we saw it uh, with France benefiting from it where a kick was actually missed and that the kicker was able to take it again because in that kick, the goalkeeper came off the line. It should be noted also that the law has been changed actually to benefit the goalkeepers in that before you had to have both feet on the line. Now you only have to have one foot on the line. But still, uh, this is a, a constant debate now about why this is happening Uh my good friend Karina LeBlanc, who uh, was a goalkeeper for many years for the Canadian national team, uh, has challenged me saying that this fundamentally changes the way that goalkeepers play the, play the game. I come back with, yes, it, it fundamentally changes the way the game is played. And you better adjust. And we are seeing, as I said, teams and players adjust in real time to a VAR world. And they, they, they will adjust. Now, specifically on the penalty uh, situation where VAR is being used. Um, and, and keep in mind, the EPL, which is, has v, VAR coming out this fall, has seen what has happened here at this World Cup and came out with a public announcement that they will not be using VAR to determine whether the goalkeeper came off the line. And that's a whole other side of it. But just, just know that that's how much this is resonating around the world in the, in the soccer world right now. Thoughts? Yeah, listen, if you're if you drive down a highway every day where everybody's always speeding and nobody ever gets a ticket, and then you're that first guy who gets a ticket for driving 56 miles an hour, you're going to say, well, wait a minute. <laughs> Why? You know, so you never want to be that first sort of guinea pig of when they, they start to enforce a rule that's never been enforced before. So I understand. But what's some, your excuse? I understand. Ben? What's your excuse? That everybody else is no, driving no, I, fast? I'm, or, I'm, I'm on your right? side. You can't be a little pregnant. I understand the consternation on the part of the players because for a hundred years we've just grown accustomed to that not being called and, and, and goalkeepers being given a lot of leeway there. So when they first start to enforce that rule more stringently, there's going to be a little bit of a taken aback right. of, oh, wow, you're calling this now? And But if the game is going to move in that direction, that's fine. But you just have to be consistent with it. Even within this tournament, uh, we've looked and we found examples. The, the Jamaica keeper made a save on a penalty on, against Brazil where she was just as much off the line as the Nigeria and the Scotland keepers were, and that wasn't called. And particularly, and you know, I I know this might come off a little sexist. Is I want to see if they're going to enforce this in the men's game because mm -hmm. I don't know. I feel like the women are being used a little bit as the guinea pigs for this, and it's it's a I don't know psychologically, it's a little bit easier to make these calls in in the women's World Cup. I think I want to see uh, the me next men's World Cup if they're going to referees are going to have the courage to make th these calls. If they do, and this is the new reality, then you're right. Then over time, everybody will get used to it. The players will adjust, fans will adjust, and okay, this is how it is now. But at the very beginning, it's, it's going to be a little bit startling. Okay, so you know, that's the, uh, the VAR debate that's, uh, that's going on. The actual play on the field, there, you know, the group stage in, in a Women's World Cup 
offers us moments of, of very interesting games and moments where we know what's going to happen. And I think it has kind of played out the way that we thought. There's not really a whole lot of surprise when it comes to this final 16 uh, that, we are, that we are seeing here. Uh, specific to the U.S., to nobody's surprise, they won all of their games uh, very easily, including this, and we're recording this right after the, uh, the, the third group stage game against Sweden, which they took care of Sweden. This was a team that was finally going to give the U.S. a competitive game, and they did. It was, there was actual shots on our goal, so listen here, actually faced shots. There was actual uh, times where Sweden was in our own end, which, unlike the previous two games, uh, that that didn't happen. So in that sense, it was good. They passed with flying colors. It was comfortable. It was uneventful. Uh, they won two nothing. I think the big the big talking point of that one was that Sweden made seven changes to their starting lineup. And you know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist or anything, but there is the reality that the way that the U.S. now has gone because of the fact that they won the group is the side that France is on. And I think uh, even uh, that everybody would argue is the more difficult side of the bracket. We saw this last summer in the men's world cup too. There was a very, there was a recognized much more difficult side of the bracket. And the U S has just gone there uh, because of, because they've been good. It's just the way that it shapes up and Sweden gets to go the opposite side. And I'm not saying that they threw their game, but for a potential to win your group, you make seven changes, including three along the back line. It makes you go, hmm. And I think, I would submit to you, Mossy, and tell me if I'm crazy, that Sweden got exactly what they wanted in terms of this result. They didn't set out to lose it, but they sure as hell didn't set out to win it. And I, and I would also argue that both teams actually got what they want. The U.S., I don't think in any way, shape, or form would ever consider trying to get second place and not, go, and not be the best and come out of their group. So they got what they want in that they won their group, which was what everyone predicted all along. You know, the reward is now you get to possibly face France in the quarterfinals. And Sweden made all those changes and ultimately got second place, which sends them off to a much weaker uh, bracket and a different type of path going forward. Am I wrong? No, you're right. I mean, it, it, it's completely against the U.S. ethos to ever consider, uh, you know, trying to arrange an easier right. path. And also, based on what you told me from conversations you've had with uh, some of the players before the tournament, also, frankly, things that Heather O'Reilly and others have said on the air, like, the U.S. isn't buying this whole France thing. They right. think they're better than France. They think they're tougher mentally than France. And that if that's the game, they'll they'll win it, no problem. I mean, that's the vibe I'm getting off the U.S. team. So we all keep hyping up that matchup as this, this thing that the U.S. should be terrified of, but the players don't seem to feel that way. Oh, I think if, if the U.S., is doesn't fear France and is better than France and goes out and beats France in the quarterfinals, I think they might as well just give them the cup at that point. Because if, if they win that quarterfinal game against France, I think they win the, uh, the World Cup. I just worry about them, uh, them winning. It was interesting because keep in mind that three years ago back in the Olympics, it was this seminal moment when Sweden beat the U.S. in the Olympics, knocked us out of the, the Olympics. It was the earliest that we've ever gone out in a tournament uh, at, at that stage. And... Uh, there was, you know, the, the famous uh, Hope Solo famously called Sweden cowards for the way that they played this defensive uh, bunker type of uh, system. They, you know, that that wasn't right. They were actually very, very smart and pragmatic in the way that they uh, went about it. But it did seem to me that this approach from Sweden may be another smart and pragmatic approach that will benefit them in the long term. But it also signaled to me that 
they were scared. They were scared of France. And I don't think that the U.S., uh, unlike Sweden, is scared of France. And I think there's a real mentality of, hey, bring it on. Let's uh, let's do it. What about other teams out there? Has anybody surprised you? We've had, you know, four years ago, the Dutch weren't quite ready for prime time. They've come through with with flying colors. They're 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 going to go on. I think the biggest surprise of the tournament would be maybe a bit of Italy winning their group and coming through. They're going to be interesting. The U.S. plays Spain now in the round of 16, uh, a team that they certainly should beat, and it would be an incredible upset if Spain were to uh, find a way to beat uh, beat the U.S. But it's I don't think they're going to roll over them. Uh, no, I mean you know Spain are. A sort of classic team that that possesses the ball well, but lacks that. End product. They have a very good striker in Jennifer Hermoso, but nevertheless, they they have trouble putting the ball in the back of the net, translating all that possession into real end product. So, uh, you know, there'll be a, a tough challenge for the U.S. In, in that they'll be able to hold on to the ball and frustrate the Americans a little bit. But I agree with you. At the end of the day, that's a game the U.S. should definitely win and and move on. And 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 then you know France play Brazil which is a game France should definitely win. So I think we are headed for that matchup uh, that we've been touting uh, for so long. It's, it's, it's going to be fun. All right, so that's where we are uh, at this point when it comes to, to the Women's World Cup. Anything else you want to say on the Women's World Cup, either on or off the field? No, I mean, I mean, you asked me before what other teams. I think England's been sort of quietly going about yep. its business, maybe not winning any style points, but I kind of like, you know, they've uncovered a real goal scorer here in Ellen White and, and Lucy Bronze and Fran Kirby, and they've, they've, they've got a lot of quality on that team. So, And they play Cameroon now in the round of 16. So I, I, I kind of have my eye on England as, a, as that sort of non-U.S. France team that I think is shaping up as a real contender to win it. Well, it's interesting because, you know, these are these – there's so many different layers to the Women's World Cup, and, and we inevitably will do compares and contrasts. And the, the stakes and the potential and the opportunity that exists in the Women's World Cup sometimes is different. And therefore, the pressure that teams are playing under for not just to win soccer games and not just for the glory of winning soccer games, but for the, some, in some instances for the future of women's soccer and for making a statement and for having that statement translate into more money and more funding and more attention and stuff like that. I think the best thing in the world for soccer, for world soccer, would be to have somebody other than the U.S. win this World Cup. And I'm not talking Germany's, the, the teams that have won it in the past. To have somebody new win the World Cup, especially, like you mentioned, England, for example, uh, that where it would really resonate and I think it would really kick on and do the things that we talk about and we hope for but don't always happen. A team like Italy, a team like Spain, these teams that haven't won it have recently started to come to their senses, really, and and start putting resources and time and energy into the women's game, and have made up a tremendous amount of ground very quickly, but really need that that injection that everybody can gravitate to and grab onto. That's so important. Have a 1999 like the U.S. did um, when the women won the, won the World Cup at at home. Of uh, uh, France, they're already well on their way of becoming very very good in terms of the uh, the landscape out there, but. Well, my American heart wants the U.S. to win and, and hopes the U.S. win, and certainly my television heart wants that to happen. I think it would be really, really good for the game, the overall global game, and therefore the game in the United States and everywhere else, if somebody and somebody new were to win this uh, win this World Cup. I'm not sure that 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 is you know someone like Australia, these types of these types of countries and teams and cultures that could just really, really use that ultimate moment when you're holding up the cup and something to point to, and a generation to watch, and a generation to grab, on, grab onto. So we'll see if, uh, if any of that happens. And would you say Sam Kerr, clearly the best player in this tournament? 
the things that she does are so much so from a physical standpoint she's you know she's a very smart player but from a physical standpoint are so m- much more advanced uh than i mean look she didn't get marked the other day that she scored four goals but still her ability in the air the physical ability strength and grace that she has and timing that she has is really phenomenal i mean i love the slow motion shots of her where you could see first off the timing that she had then how far off the ground she got she is a handful and she and she's not that big she is one of these people like a uh, um i guess a comparison in the, in the u.s men's game would be a brian mcbride brian mcbride wasn't ridiculously tall or anything like that but he had that knack and that ability to hang in the air the extra millisecond which screwed everybody else's timing up and he had mastered it and sam kerr certainly has uh, has mastered it where she loves the air she loves to be fed in the air and she has this god-given ability and physical ability to hang in the air um and and also to direct direct that ball from various angles and and, and different times very different uh, angles so she's she's fun to watch absolutely and they faced Norway, which, not to revisit this, but had Ada Hegerberg played in the tournament, that would have been sort of a neat duel between the two best yep. players in the world. So we were deprived of that. But still, Sam Kerr is reason enough to watch that game. She's phenomenal. She's Yeah, she, she is going to be fun. All right, listen, uh, the uh, we, are, we were recording this on uh, Friday. The round of 16 games kick off this weekend. You can see them all uh, on Fox, and it's going to be fun. Now it, now it matters. Now it counts. Uh, win and go on, lose and and go home, and it's going to be fun to see who steps up. And uh, you're looking forward to any in particular matchups. You said uh, your Brazil team is not long for this tournament, given that they uh, drew France. Yeah, but that's a that's a tasty matchup, yeah. you know. And and they've France has certainly caused Brazil a lot of pain in men's World Cup through the years. And we'll see if maybe the Brazil women can get a little revenge here. Um, so yeah, that one for sure. Australia, Norway, I just mentioned. Um, you know, Sweden, Canada is an interesting game. Netherlands, Japan. Yeah, I mean, they're all all good matchups. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. All right. So uh, we also have the Gold Cup, which has kicked off the uh, U.S. men's national team after what I have to say is 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 the darkest period I have ever experienced in uh, U.S. soccer with regards to how the team is viewed. I have never seen a more negative and cynical um, and just apathetic type of approach and view of this uh, of this team and look it's it's once again it's 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 i have no problem with it. it is it is the right reaction given the epic failure that was not making the world cup team a new crop of players coming in young and experienced a young and experienced coach in greg berhalter and you you can have faith in a team but you don't have blind faith and i think that this summer is where Greg Berhalter proves that he is the man for the job. And this summer is where he and this team start winning back hearts and minds of people. But nobody's going to come easily. People are going to sit there and they're going to cross their arms and they're going to say, this is the same thing, or this is worse, we've regressed, or why is Michael Bradley still out there? Why is Josie Altidore still out there? So far, so good in this tournament. Keep in mind they were coming off of two uh, losses coming into this tournament and friendlies, which got a lot of people worried and, and raised some eyebrows and people scratching their heads as to whether this team was even remotely close to uh, competing in this Gold Cup for the Gold Cup, which has always been our goal, given what, what we are. Started off Guyana, 
certainly not a U.S. women's national team Thailand-esque type of performance, but a 4 nothing win against a vastly inferior team. Not much to take out of that. Next, they face Trinidad and Tobago. And look, whether it was three, three years ago in Cuba, uh, Trinidad, uh, or it's going to be in wherever they're playing here, Cleveland, I don't know where the, uh, the game is, you should beat Trinidad. You are the U.S. men's national team, and you should beat Trinidad. And I think I, I think that they will. And much like the women in in the World Cup, in this Gold Cup, we're, we're going to have to wait to get a real type of competitive game and, and competitive opposition for uh, for the U.S. And ultimately, as it as it always has in the past, and I think the expectations are well, not all the expectations, but uh, are that the U.S. and Mexico are the teams uh, are the teams to beat, but do you sense this negativity and uh, this cynicism when it comes to this team as much as I do? Yeah, certainly those two friendly defeats right before this Gold Cup uh, reignited that again. Because I thought Burhalter had gotten off to a decent start and we sure. were starting to win people over. Uh, but yeah, those, those two losses back-to-back got everybody upset again. And beating Guyana isn't going to help that. So yeah, they're going to have to go on a nice run here and presumably beat Mexico in the final, I think, to really get everybody back. Well, it's going to be fun to see see them try and see if after this summer, because I was talking earlier about how in the same way that Jill Ellis, that game against Sweden was kind of this referendum on her because there's this notion out there that you just you just throw the ball out. She just throws the ball out and the great talent that the U.S. has just, just does what they do, which is, which is ludicrous. Um, but she got through that with flying colors. She got it all right against Sweden. There's this... Um, referendum I think that's going to be had on Greg Berhalter and if they are heading in the right direction this summer with the Gold Cup because as I said I, I don't think I can remember a more cynical and skeptical time when it comes to the uh, U.S. men's national team and so this is this is about winning back hearts and minds and resurrecting this once let's not say great but once very good type of team that people believed in and had faith in. And again, it's, it's, it's faith, but not blind faith. And the onus is on Greg Berhalter and this team this summer to reclaim that faith and, and bring people uh, back in. So it's going to be fun to see how, how that all happens. Uh, I know you wanted to talk about uh, some other things that are happening around the world, including, as always, Messi, Ronaldo, uh, and in this case, um, Neymar being coming coming back into the fold. So, uh, what do you got for us when, uh, on that front? Yeah, a couple of miscellaneous things. The international component of the Messi Ronaldo rivalry is becoming a real issue for Messi, and it wasn't uh, up until 2016. It was kind of a wash on that front. They were both what our former Fox Sports colleague Mike Francesa would term compilers, which is to say the <laughs> overall numbers look great. I love were, when you reference Mike. Yeah, they were both their country's all-time leading scorers, but neither one had really had a great major tournament or won anything. Their legends were entirely predicated on what they did at club level. Then Ronaldo uh, won the Euros, and I know you could pick at that. He didn't have that great of a tournament. They essentially won the final without him, but still, he won that. He had that incredible hat-trick against Spain at the last World Cup, and then a couple of weeks ago, he has an unbelievable hat-trick against Switzerland and wins the UEFA Nations League, while for Messi... It's gone from bad to worse with Argentina. Terrible World Cup. They're off to a bad start in this Copa America. Ronaldo is now steaming towards 100 international goals. And so you look at it, and 
Uh, Messi playing for Argentina is something that actually diminishes him, while Ronaldo is using international football to enhance his legend. So those of us that favor Messi, it's yet another thing that we have to struggle to reconcile because I think on the international front, uh, advantage clearly Ronaldo. All right, my question when it comes to Messi and this this evergreen topic of the national team, and it's a, it's a simple one, but I think it's the most important one. Do you think that Messi enjoys playing with Argentina? I do not. I've spoken about this before on the podcast. I think he hates it, and he would walk away tomorrow if he could, but he feels a certain sense of obligation. He feels like he would get crushed for walking away without having won anything while Ronaldo could walk away tomorrow and nobody would begrudge him. He plays for Portugal still because he enjoys it and he wants to keep breaking records and reaching milestones, so it's a totally different dynamic. Do you think it stems from this unique upbringing and coming over early, leaving his country early as a kid and being in La Masia and being in that incubator and and that cocoon uh, that he's never really left and so much a part of him is obviously Barcelona and Spain, because it saddens me that arguably one of the greatest players in the world uh, of all time is is so pained to represent his country. Because look, he is not the first great player to take a step down when he goes to the national team. There are a lot of players that would love to be able to take that step uh, and go to Argentina. Because it's not as if he's just surrounded by a bunch of players who can't play the game. There is plenty of talent that that, that surrounds him, but. He does seem pained. And I don't think, I think people are reasonable. Not everybody, but I think people are reasonable. They don't, they, they know they can't expect a Barcelona Messi with Argentina. And I don't think that they, that he will ever be able to give us that. And if he thinks that that's what he needs to do, that's, that's not the case. But I do think it's specific to his upbringing and his path that he has taken that this, this mentality of, it's, it's, it's a responsibility, everybody, but you want people to embrace that responsibility. And when it becomes such a burden and such an albatross around your neck, uh, that, that's sad. That's, that's sad to me that this great player has to carry this around. And you know, we don't know exactly, but if he really hates getting on that plane to go play for the national team, that's, that's a horrible thing. And that's never going to end out well. But it, and, and as I said, he's not the only one. Zlatan or Mosala, these type of players that go where their, their national team existence is not the existence that they have when they're at the club level. But everybody does it, um, maybe out of a sense of patriotism and responsibility, like you said. But ultimately, I think that at some place in you, you have to enjoy it, even though it might be more difficult, even though you might get more crap, even though you might be incredibly frustrated. Yeah, I think the dysfunction with Argentina frustrates him. He feels like the circumstances are such that he can't possibly live up to the standards that are placed on him. Uh, but I agree with you. It's often portrayed as a binary choice. Is it Messi's fault or is it everybody around him? And it can be a little bit of both. Uh, certainly, there are a lot of issues with Argentina. But And I love Messi. Uh, he could do a better job of rising above it and playing a little better with Argentina than he does. So, yeah, I mean, I, I just I think it's just uh, it's become an interesting component of this Messi Ronaldo rivalry here in the tail end of their careers and, and, and seeing how kind of their international careers wrap up. Uh, but, you know, the other thing I wanted to mention, and it's sort of on the topic of Messi feeling like he needs help. Uh, I'm frankly amazed this notion that Neymar might go back to Barcelona is really gaining steam and starting to look like a real possibility 
Uh, I thought he had burned that bridge, but the Barcelona directors seem open to it, and the fans seem very open to it. I've seen surveys in Barcelona papers where fans have been uh, asked to choose between Neymar or Griezmann, and it's overwhelmingly in favor of Neymar. Now, Griezmann uh, alienated everybody last summer by uh, staging that LeBron James-like decision mm -hmm. documentary to announce whether he was going to Barcelona or staying with Atletico, and ultimately he chose to stay with Atletico. And so evidently that's a big issue there. But still, I mean, the fact that everybody now all of a sudden seems to be on board with Neymar coming back and PSG have grown tired of him. So they're they're willing to sell him for the right price. So they're negotiating now and figuring out some combination of money and players. Will it be Coutinho going the other way or Dembele? Uh, but whatever the case, it's just amazing to me that... Uh, uh, two years later, we're going to have this sort of transfer saga game, but this time it's going to be Neymar perhaps going from PSG back to Barcelona. And evidently the, the genesis of all this is that Messi went to the Barcelona president and said, get him back. You know, Messi's reaction to that incredible Champions League defeat to Liverpool was to go to the president and say, look, I, I need more help here. Uh, please get me Neymar back. So the president said, okay, and he's trying. It would be, it would be awesome. I'd love to see that. Do you think he, he comes back... I know it's kind of messy reaching out and having this this olive branch, but do you think that Neymar comes back? Well, first off, do you think Neymar wants to do that? Second off, do you think he comes back with his tail between his legs to a certain extent, having been humble and he wanted to be the man? It didn't quite work out. He's been he's had plenty plenty of injuries. I guess, I guess my I guess my question is, why would Neymar want to do that? And and are you getting a contrite and humbled type of Neymar? Yeah, uh, to some extent, yeah, I think he would come back with some egg on his face, and yeah, I guess it's just it's just gotten so bad with PSG, and he feels like it just it was a mistake, and it's just never going to happen for him there the way he imagined, and so he, I guess, he's willing to sort of abandon this notion of, of being the man and trying to topple Messi and Ronaldo, and he'll just sort of accept his lot as going back to being Messi's sidekick for the next few years, and uh, hopefully, you know, winning more Champions League titles and and sort of boosting his reputation that way. Well, it, it's, it, it was, if it was a mistake, it, sure, it was a very profitable mistake for, for Neymar. I don't worry about, uh, don't worry about that. I think it would be great for Barcelona. I think it would be great for La Liga um, to, to have that type of uh, situation back. I'd love, I, I, I hope that happens. I would, uh, I, I would love to see it. Uh, anything else, Mossy, before we, uh, we end this out? Uh, should I tell my story? Oh yeah, you want to tell your story. That's right. Okay, so, uh, as is, look, we, we are a, we are a family over here in Fox and, uh, I tell people all the time, and I think I told you guys this on the pod before that when you go and do these things, it's this groundhog day, everybody's together, tight quarters, everybody's working together. You get to know people that you didn't know before will be the good and the bad, the ugly, everything, uh, everything in between. Everybody knows everybody's business. There's all sorts of stuff, uh, uh going on. And it's this little city, if you will, or village that uh, a very tight knit village and stuff like that. So um, stories circulate. And I started to hear stories about you, Mossy. It was, it was a, a story circulating. And I want to make sure that that for the record, we 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 understand exactly what happened, because as you know, it's, you know, the, the game of telephone, the story takes on uh, a different light and somebody changes a little detail or aspect here. And next thing you know, you're hearing about this. But I was I was hearing some stories out there. But let us know, because I know you had a interesting night, to say the least, the other day. Yeah, my time in Paris has been great overall, but there was an unfortunate incident. Uh, a couple of nights ago, I came back to the hotel late after a long day of work, and I couldn't uh, locate my room keys. So I had to go to the front desk and ask them to give me a new one, which they did. 
when I got back to the room, the key was there. I had left it in the room all day. And now I had two. I put them side by side. And I eventually went to bed, was trying to fall asleep, and I started to feel thirsty. And right outside my room, there's an ice and water dispensing machine. And so I crawled out of bed. At this point, I'm wearing just a T-shirt and boxers and decided, let me go. It's like literally right there. So let me just go grab a quick uh, cup of water and I'll be back in bed in 30 seconds. And I grabbed one of the keys, but I unfortunately grabbed the old one. And when they give you the new one, they deactivate the old one. So I open the door, I go grab water, the door closes behind me, and then turn around, try to get back in. The key doesn't work. <laughs> so there I am at midnight in the hallway of my hotel wearing a T-shirt and boxer shorts, and I can't get back in my room. So uh, I decide I have to go back downstairs and ask for another key. And I'm thinking, you know what? It's midnight. The lobby is probably dead. But it just so happened that a shuttle uh, bringing people back from work had just arrived. So the elevator door <laughs> opens. I walk out in T-shirt and box, and there's like loads of people in the lobby. Oh, uh, and yeah, I had to get uh, another key. So Wow. Well, uh, okay, we come to the end of another pod. Uh, once again, here from Paris as we continue on with the Women's World Cup. And having burned the image of a boxered David Mossy into your brains, I... I either say you're welcome or I apologize for, for that image. That would have been something to, uh, to, be, to behold, my friend. Uh, but these are, the things, these are the things that happen. And um, your, your time in France is going to be all of those different moments, whether it's you and your boxes, boxers at midnight in your hotel uh, or walking around the Louvre. There is beauty in all of it. And I hope you continue to have this incredible uh, adventure here in Paris. And I hope that you all continue to uh, listen I know we haven't uh, done as many pods as we would have liked. Uh, this there is there's a lot of work going on over here. It uh, it certainly takes a village to be able to put out the amount of content that we are producing uh, and the amount of television. It's a, a labor of love. We're very very fortunate as always and privileged to be able to do it. I hope you keep watching it. Uh, whether it's Women's World Cup, as as we said, uh, the round of 16 kicks off this weekend. The continuation of the Gold Cup and uh, whether this resurrection of Greg Berhalter's national team and the, nas the, the men's national team happens this summer with the Gold Cup. Copa America continues on. We were watching that in the bar last night, so that continues on uh, down there. So much soccer, all the different stories that are happening. Uh, Preseason for European leagues are right around the corner. MLS continues on. We'll we'll be dealing with uh, MLS All-Star later on in the summer. So a lot of different stuff going on. So I bid you adieu, adieu, adieu. Is that right? Is that French? How do you say goodbye? Au revoir. I, I, I bid you au revoir. Au revoir. A bientôt. See you soon. A bientôt. See you soon. All right. Uh, well, au revoir. Uh, and we will talk to you again next time. Uh, as always, thank you for listening. And as always, size the day.